0: goal isn't that I can understand myself, full stop. It is, how do I use this with the people around me? How does this affect the way that I share the gospel? How does this affect the way that I'm on mission? How does this affect the way that I listen to people who I'm very different to? All those implications, once you know your type, that is literally step one to uh, dozens and dozens of possibilities. Welcome to The Nine Design, a podcast where we're looking at all nine Enneagram types in light of our culture as Aussies and our faith as followers of Jesus. I'm Seth, a creative, and I'm in Adelaide.
1: And I'm Serena, a coach, and I'm in Melbourne.
2: And I'm Ryan, and I'm in the Blue Mountains. And we're excited to have you join us for The Nine Design.
0: So welcome to the final episode of this season, which is a question and response time on the spiritual practices that we've been talking about this whole season. And it isn't just Serena and I, Ryan is here too. Hey guys, how you doing?
1: Good to have you with us. Mm. And it's a joy and privilege to be invited into your lives as you listen to this podcast. We hope The Nine Design has helped you grow in appreciation for those you love and drawn you closer to the heart of God.
0: All right, let's dive into the creative ways that we've been designed. So as I said, this is the last episode in the season and we want to thank you guys for listening and sharing and rating and subscribing and all of you who've written reviews and followed us on social media. We couldn't be doing this without you guys. and We're very, very appreciative of that. Thanks for sending us encouragements and stories of how the podcast has been helping you. And for those of you who've contacted Serena and started coaching, thank you guys for getting behind what we're doing. Also, for getting the shirts and the earrings, that's been a great way to help promote what we're doing and also look good while doing that. And
1: also thank you for making the 9design a part of your life and using it as a tool for self-development and to love others better.
0: Let's dive into the questions then. What we've done is we've actually grouped together the themes around the questions you've sent through. And the first group is around the silence, fasting, and stillness practices. A number of questions came through on that. First one is, more people find silence more difficult to practice than solitude. Why do you think that is? And what are some more practical ways to add more silence into our lives? So the first part of that question is, why is silence so difficult? What are your responses to that?
1: I think my initial response to that is we we live in a world full of noise it's it's busy where he's rushing around mm-hmm. and so silence is so counter. Like I can't think of any spiritual practice that, is more counter to the current culture we live in other than silence. You know, we're in a culture of distraction and whole businesses are built and algorithms are written for Facebook and every social media platform to distract us, to Mm -hmm. grab our attention, to take it away from, you know, what we're doing and and make us focus on what they want to promote to us. So the culture that we are steeped in is that. And so silence is this super intentional, pulling away from that, silencing our internal world, our thoughts, our feelings, and then silencing what's on around us, you know, take off all noise like TV or music Mm. or podcasts or whatever, just totally silence the space that we're in. And that is not something that most people do on a daily basis. So for sure silence is going to be super mm. difficult.
2: About 15 years ago, I was actually around at my wife's house or wasn't my wife at the time and her parents were just watching TV with her family and they would mute the ads, the old Free air TV, they would mute the ads. And I remember yep. my bodily response was like, what are you doing? It was utter frustration. Like why are you silencing? It? And we just sit there in this awkward silence during the ad break and it was so <laughs> uncomfortable for me. And I remember thinking, this is a, just a crazy idea. What are, they, what are they doing? Now, fast forward 10 years, and I'm sitting there in front of the TV, and now I've tasted and seen this practice of silence, and, and the benefit it is to my life, I actually miss the ads because I don't need any more mm. noise coming into my life. And so I just want to highlight that. It's actually nearly mm. like taking a fish out of water. You don't know... How, it, uncomfortable. We don't like it because it's unknown and foreign. And so I think actually just to be a bit kind to yourself and actually go, this is going to be hard. There's no shortcuts. Actually, it is, will be hard because we're not used to it.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's this, this feature of silence, which is active listening and not many people are used to that. It's a taught skill that we don't just naturally have. Mm. That's also why I think silence is so difficult. It requires a different part of our brain mm-hmm. being than what we're used to accessing on a daily basis. So if you're not practicing listening to people who are in your life, in your world, then listening to God and and listening in the silence is going to be challenging.
0: Yeah, so that's that's a really good practical way to actually practice silence. What, what are some other practical ways uh, that you guys can think of or that come to mind for those of us who are like, this is a big need. How do I do it?
1: One thing you could give a go is when you're sitting with, with a friend, how about trying to stay silent in that conversation, really tuning into what that person's saying and thoughtfully responding versus just reacting, listening to the words they use to describe their thoughts and their feelings, what they're doing, and then mirroring back there's some active listening skills that you can grow in in that space, but that will help you when you do draw away to be with God in a space of silence to practice that with him too. What we practice with our friends and family, we can practice with God absolutely.
2: Yeah, I think for me the, um, the other one that I would encourage is just to find a buddy, a friend to actually practice silence with. Now that might sound counterintuitive, <laughs> but actually to have a conversation before for some people, we're, we're just relationally wired, right? Like different numbers actually need people uh, to process, to, ex- to understand what's going on. So if you have someone you can have a discussion with before, Practicing science and then even post-practicing science to share your experience in a safe place where there's no judgment, there's no actually success, wrong or right. Then you're not alone, and you actually have someone to uh, reference and that can hold you. And also, obviously, God's holding you, but can hold you in light of who God says you are. Cool. It's just hard. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up, it's just hard.
0: One thing that comes to mind, and I don't know if this this probably relates to almost all of the the practices. And may may be very specific to threes, but I think it relates. I think all of us can take from this. I found that the less I have my phone around me, the mm. more I am able to be silent. The, mm. the better I can actively listen. The more present I am when God is talking. And so I've made it a, a habit when I meet with someone for a coffee or something, not just to put my phone on the table upside down. Yeah, that's a good thing, but it's still right there and it's in my mind like it's right there Mm. i've been making this habit to just have it in my bag or to like just not even have it around me so i can't visually see it and when i'm when i'm chatting with people and i hear it ringing there's this urge to want to pick up the phone or just check who it is Mm. and i've just had to be able to, to learn no i'm present with this person whoever it is can leave a message or send me a text message if it's really urgent, you know, and I can read it in 15, 20 minutes. And just that simple act when I'm meeting with God in the morning and my phone sends a message or there's a reminder, it's easier for me not even to be distracted by that and to sit in that silence. So I think that could relate to a lot more than just type threes, but yeah. Yeah
1: i think that also links to the practice of being present we haven't spoken about that as a as a spiritual practice but it's definitely mm-hmm. part of all of them being present with people showing them that you you care enough about them to pop the phone in the bag and and not let it take that time or steal that time from you is really nice and it's really undervalued i think
0: another question is i find fasting difficult to integrate into my lifestyle Any extra tips on how to do this? What are your thoughts around that?
2: It'd be interesting to know more about the context of this question, because um, when I think about the difficulty of integrating fasting into my life, I consider the challenge that I face. And so uh, I wonder what this person might be facing in the challenges in their life. But um, some of the things is just uh, the everyday living. So I've got a family. I've got Three little kids, they need to eat. They need to, you know, uh, live their lives. And so and one of the things we value as a family is sitting around the dinner table sharing a meal. So how does one fast and do it well in that setting? And um, it's a bit of a challenge because, you know, if I am sit down and I'm not eating anything, um, my kids might actually go, oh, that's a great excuse. I'm fasting. I'm not eating broccoli. I'm not eating. <laughs> and so what do you do with that? And uh, yes. I, the only thing I could think of in this space is actually there's a teaching moment there, right? Like, well, why am I doing this practice? And so how can I share as I engage with these practices and it makes it more difficult or there's a clunk in the normal, the normal parts of my life. Maybe there's an opportunity to share something or to um, help someone understand something or see something a little bit differently. It doesn't necessarily answer the question, but I think part of my invitation would be actually to lean into some of the awkwardness and the difficulty, even though it's uncomfortable. Or it might make them feel a bit awkward. Maybe there's an invitation for a different way in in around that space.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I was really thinking when I saw this question, what makes me want to fast? Because I don't find fasting easy either. And I find it really difficult. <laughs> and it's not. It's certainly an upstream thing for me. To be honest, I it starts with that heart posture for me. So I've got to have a conviction to fast. If I don't really have that conviction, then I'm not going to do it. So it's got to be like such a motivating driving force for me to give up food for a chunk of time. Looking at why you fast, you know, I would encourage you if you're struggling, write down a list of reasons why you think fasting is good go to the Bible, look at that, listen to our episode on fasting and just write down whatever really stands out to you on why you think you want to fast. Why is fasting important to you? What does God say about it? And find the conviction in that list and use it as a motivation to create a new routine of fasting to say, well, if this is important to me, then I'm going to put it in my schedule and I'm going to make it a part of my life. So, I think it really starts for me as a conviction, as a something that you really believe to be true, enough to make a habit out of it. We've mentioned before, start small, fast. One meal a week might be easier, like a lunch. So, then it's like this bookend of like breakfast and dinner where you're actually eating and you can start with a lunch and sort of be like, oh, it's not so bad, especially if you've never done it before. Right. It might feel very odd.
0: Oh, Ryan, you mentioned when we talked about fasting, this idea of eating rice only one day a week, what, what was that about?
2: Yeah, and I think that was the thing is, you know, some people they actually struggle to function without food and with something like rice and the fact that it's the same, it means that some of the benefits of fasting are still there because it creates time and space that you otherwise don't have and there's a space of still integrating and connecting with God and the heart of fasting, even though you're still actually taking food into your body.
0: The next question has to do with stillness, and it came up after we did the episode on stillness, and the question says this, I'd like to hear more about how to practice daily stillness. What tips, what do you guys have around that, digging a bit deeper than what we got into in the episode?
1: These questions always sort of link me back to the the heart posture to begin with. What is our heart posture before God? And that can be hard to discern. but. If our heart is turned towards God, looking at how to practice more daily stillness how to how to put more of these daily practices of stillness in your life can be from the place of a heart turned toward God, listening to his voice, he can give you how to practice daily stillness. That may seem simple, but in this, I think there's this childlikeness where if we're really relying on our Father and we know he's good and we're trusting him then he will give us the things, the practices, his ideas that will work perfectly for us. Even if they're clunky to begin with, you know, some people find practicing stillness better in the morning. Some people find it better at night. Some people like for a chunk of my life, when my kids were little, mine was during the day. So when my kids were napping, because they all had naps at some point in their life, and that went on for Mm -hmm. like 10 years, (laughs) then for 10 years, I was like resting and having stillness with God in the middle of the day, because I was way too tired at night, not a morning person. So yeah, that kind of worked for me. So finding those pockets of time, but also asking God what he has for you in that space. And my last tip, I think it all boils down to just prioritizing it. You know, we said scheduling in times of silence, but prioritizing times of stillness is, is what it's about as well. Mm. So heart posture, prioritizing, asking God, they're my best tips.
2: And just to add to what Serena said, I'm going to aim super practical, um, especially if this is wanting to form a daily practice of stillness some things around a regular space and a regular time are so helpful and we can take this for granted. Um, If we don't make this a priority, it actually, when we're still developing in a practice, it very quickly falls by the wayside and and we lose track or it, you know, just slips off the edge into the margins and we never see it again. And so I think particularly the time, uh, for me, that's first thing in the morning. And unfortunately, I've got children who are up at six, so that's pretty early to start. And mm-hmm. so, but if, if I need, if I want this to become an integrated part of my life, that's kind of the time spot. That five thirty time slot is like where I'm aiming, and the space is so important. Literally, this morning I sat down to have a quiet time, and it was probably about twenty to six, and I sat in a chair in the lounge room, and I just I could feel in my body that. I was about to be interrupted. I didn't know when, but there was someone going to come into the room for some reason. And so I actually got up and, and it's warmer now. I went outside. I sat in a chair, that I don't sit in very often. And it was, a, it was a space and a time to be able to be with God. And so I think those spaces are really critical, a space where it's outside of your regular routine, the, you know, the path you regularly walk through your life, through your house, through the, this world. So it's, it's not familiar. Um, I think it's a concept that's in the in, in, from the old testament where, you know, the tent of meeting is outside the camp, but a space where you can go and you go and uh, your sort of body knows, your heart knows, your mind knows, ah, this is the time when we're still, as we sit in this chair of this space. Um, it's just really helpful to train your body um, and train into this and practice this discipline.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really good. What I'm hearing from you guys is like there's this intentional effort that, is really needed so it isn't just something that happens automatically but Mm. to actually put this effort in setting aside time prioritizing time moving to a different space whatever it is is there more that we can say around the busyness of life with kids running around if you're a mom at home or or if you're at at the office nine hours a day or whatever how can you practice stillness in those times when you can't pull away when you can't be separate from other people when you're kind of just stuck what does that look like do you have any tips around that
2: mm-hmm. it may be a bit close for comfort but sometimes the smallest room in the house that that room where we go and lock the door um, and take five minutes to do what we have to do as humans <laughs> actually mm-hmm. can buddy into this mm-hmm. especially when you've got mm-hmm. kids they don't they're not respecters of locked uh, of privacy and so to actually have a little room where you can lock mm. the door go in and i've actually got a mate he runs a coffee shop and actually there's a staff toilet which is his space and he goes in there and he needs some time to gather his thoughts to have a still moment again and to centering god actually it's the smallest room in the house which it can be the biggest gift
1: yeah i think maybe if you're in an office and i've not worked in an office much of my life but the times where I have I've been able to take my lunch like in my lunch break walk around and even if my office which currently the office I work at one day a week is not in a great location like it's in an industrial area it's not like I have this beautiful parklands around me or anything like that but I take my lunch And there's a little green patch with a tree and and I sit in the gutter. Like it sounds really awful. (laughs) But, yeah, I just sit down on this green patch by the side of the road and have a moment of stillness, like even if it's like – Five, 10 minutes of my lunch break, but I can eat lunch, pray, talk to God, sit in silence where I know no one's gonna find me there. It's <laughs> sort of around the corner out the back. So if you can find a little pocket of time, you know, I think the key is not not expecting this big chunk all the time, but try and find these little spaces. I know friends of mine who work in the city and they have to catch the train in. You know, the train can be a great time of of kind of connecting with God, of stillness, of listening, you know, put, pop your headphones in, listen to worship music and read your Bible. Uh, there's little pockets that I think God provides that if we're looking for them intentionally, we will find them.
0: Yeah, I think it, it keeps coming back to this putting intentional effort, prioritising, because mm-hmm. we, we make space for things that are important for us. Yeah. And if like, uh-huh. listening to God and finding that still space is important, eventually there'll be habits in our day that, sort of play into that right earlier on we were talking and you said effort is really important but there's a difference between effort and then earning can you add a little bit more to that before we move on
2: I love the effort piece Seth you're naming it like it actually needs effort mm-hmm. effort is great and effort partners with God's grace brilliantly but uh earning takes us to a very different place um and it actually is working against God or not with him And so effort and earning, these two words, which sound very similar, they actually lead us to vastly different places. Our effort works with God's grace. Our earning or striving actually works against God's grace.
0: to hone in specifically around the enneagram and one of the questions that just keeps coming up a lot of people ask this it's a great question uh is this what do i do now that i know my type this is a very very important question how do you guys respond to that
2: well as we've been talking about the enneagram is a tool right so we've got to use this tool and for me um as a four with a very strong three wing i now have a filter like a pair of sunglasses I can look at and use this tool to reflect on my life, how I live, how I interact with the people I know, um, my friends, my family, my relatives, people I don't know, um, how I engage with the mission of God and how I even relate to God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And I have this new insight that has come as I look through this filter at my life and I can start to see things, see things where I'm a, there's a gift uh, to be celebrated, but also some of the shadows or the, uh, the, the darker sides of some of the, uh, the, the numbers, the things that I might struggle with. And so it helps me to identify how these things are in play in my life. And therefore, I feel like I'm able to uh, better integrate who Jesus calls me to be as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, and to actually pursue his heart more holistically throughout my relationships in my life.
0: Yeah, I, I think like that's, that's super helpful because like with this question, there's kind of the layer of, uh, and, I, and I'm, I don't think everyone who asks this has this in there, but there's a potential of saying, great, I know my type, I'm mm-hmm. done. As in yeah. like that was the whole point. But to be able to see knowing your type is literally like the first step. And so yes. this question leads into then the opening of so many other things, which is really, really important. And and I think it, if people aren't asking this question, I think a big part of the Enneagram, the, the point of it is to reach this point where you're asking this question, where it isn't just what's my personality. Cool, I'm in a box now or I can tick yeah. this or that. But what do I do with it? Cause that's, that's where it's really Mm. important.
1: Totally. Like we would not have done a whole podcast on a tool that, you know, just opens the door to our personality and then leaves you there. And that's as, you know, the the sum of it all. So yeah, we would not have spent this much time unpacking (laughs) personality if that was the only thing of the Enneagram. But I think it's been such a helpful tool as you guys have both mentioned. It's a tool, understanding ourselves, helping those around us understand us better. It gives us these clues, these little areas of information on our lives that need to be explored, challenged and confronted. Mm -hmm. Stops them from being hidden in the blind spots. Because once you see it, you can't unsee those parts of yourselves. (laughs) You know, and the Enneagram can be quite confronting for people and a lot of people don't like that about it. but. It actually shows us these things. And, and once you're aware of them, mm. that's the gift of self-awareness. In Enneagram coaching, there's this pathway we follow where we start with self-discovery and self-observation. So that's step one. So then we move into self-awareness where you are seeing yourself, be yourself, but then you're you're making decisions to pivot from those. Patterns of behavior that you've done that you're not happy with and that you want to change. So you're taking intentional steps to change and then transformational habits is the final kind of path, step on that pathway. And that's where we put in place uh, things that will change your behavior in the long term. But there's also this component of social awareness that comes with the Enneagram that if we can learn our blind spots and things and then we go, oh, other people see those parts of me too and I am they are receiving me like that. That's really helpful knowledge in my mind. And what you mentioned, Ryan, the best use of the Enneagram is the way we can become more like Christ because we're looking at our personality, how he's uniquely made us, what things can we do to overcome patterns of unhelpful and unhealthy behaviour? What rhythms can we put in place that will be more upstream for us, which will actually grow me closer to who I am in God and, and the fullness of who he's made me to be? So there's just so much you can do with the Enneagram. Once you know your type is, is literally just step one.
2: The only other thing I can think of is the it desire to be done, like to have completed something. And I think it's it's not complete. That's been my experience of the Enneagram is like, okay, like you're looking for the point of, okay, now I can, like as you guys have said, like I can tick that box or I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I've shared this in that earlier, I think it was in the interview that I've only landed on a four in the last probably 12 months or so, uh, moved around a bit as a, and it's been self-discovery around that spaces. And part of that was because a four, the, the original way it was presented to me I went, oh, that's not meant like me at all. The heart was there, but the the expression of it was vastly different to the caricature or the example I was given. And so was that misleading? It was like, well, I could blame that person but or, or I could actually go, no, actually God was actually in the unfolding of it.
1: I think one other thing that's helpful to note, just piggybacking off what you were saying, Ryan, about, you know, we're not done and once we know our type, it's not the end. Uh, is that this work can take years and it does take years. I'm still in process. We're all still in process. And the older I get, the more convinced I am that there is no arrival. You know, that whole arrival theory, like, you know, once we get this job, once we get married, once we have kids, once we buy the house, we yep. get this promotion, then we've arrived. Uh, and that mentality can come on to the, the you know, self-development space as well. And and that's where I go I'm convinced there's no arrival, you know, with the Enneagram, with anything in this space, there's no arrival. There's only the journey and there's only discovery and there's just process. And God is in that just as much as he is in our idea of arrival. I think he's more con- concerned about the journey and the process. So just be aware that this, this, once you know your time, it's the beginning of a journey. And that that's that's a good journey. It's an awesome journey. It can be a hard journey. It can be a deep journey, challenging journey, but it's super rewarding journey. So yeah, just keep that in mind that it's the start of something, not the end.
0: One of the really important things with the Enneagram is the communal aspect. So now mm-hmm. that I know my type, what do I do with it? It really has to do with community and the people around you because the goal isn't that I can understand myself full stop. It is how how do I use this with the people around me? How does this affect the way that I share the gospel? How does this affect the way that I'm on mission? How does this affect the way that uh, I listen to people who I'm very different to? All all those implications mm-hmm. are communal. They're ones that are outside of myself. And so this is the part where coaching can be really, really helpful uh, to have someone outside of you be speaking into that, knowing your type, Now, how does this affect your life? And so to have someone speaking into that, having friends that you can sort of use the same language and you're able to dig deeper with the people around you, once you know your type, that is literally step one to uh, dozens and dozens of possibilities. And so I think that's really important. So my question for you guys would be, are there any really helpful resources we're going to talk about books in a bit, but anything uh, outside of the book realm that would be helpful around this question. So maybe courses or podcasts or...
1: Probably uh, podcasts. One yeah. of the reasons we did the Nine Design was because I felt that there was this vacuum in, in Australia of grand podcasts. There just wasn't any that I found. And so in the US though, that's not the case and there's a lot one of the ones that I think Seth and I, you and I both like, is called The cast uh, That was a really helpful podcast that it just goes through nine types. It's really um, biblical. Uh, it's it's really great. It's really rich but easy to listen to. Uh, and there's some fun games they do at the end of every episode so you can listen to that. And, of course, The Art of Growth, We you heard us interview Jim Zartman last episode and their Enneagram Panels podcast mm. is very helpful when you're listening to all nine types talk about their experience of being them so helpful in finding your type because like for instance when Ryan you shared that you struggled to land on a four when you first just heard the the stereotype of the four but hearing like a panel of four or five people talk about or four or five different type fours talk about their experience of being a type four I'm sure that would have been super helpful for you to to hear the different experiences and the nuances of their personality and they're different ways of expressing it. So that's a really good one to listen to. Uh, Susan Stabile has one called The Enneagram Journey. Uh, that's really helpful too. She co-authored The Road Back to You with Ian Cron. Uh, but I really like Susan's podcast. It's super helpful. She has a lot of these kind of q and episodes as well, where, you know, you can, you can, get some common enneagram questions answered she interviews a heap of good guests so yeah just those are three that i would recommend off the top of my head
2: yeah for me um the the main place of working this out um has come in relationship and it's been with either a spiritual mentor or a spiritual director Mm -hmm. and i'm just going to talk from personal experience um i'm an external processor i need a safe space to be able to be vulnerable to be able to go deep to actually because some of the questions that come up in relation to the Enneagram, especially when you discover your, your number and you see some of the shadow sides, it's like, where do I go to actually talk about this in a safe space? So, yeah, for me, the value of a, a spiritual director, or a spiritual mentor, uh, a trusted companion uh, to talk about this stuff with. So if you don't have a spiritual director, a spiritual mentor, it may be, it may be a companion, um, someone in your church or in your wider Christian community that can actually hold a space and hold a, um, a conversation. Uh, bringing their working understanding of the Enneagram to that space just to provide some insight and and mirror some things back to you that might be helpful in your quest for further understanding of yourself and God and uh, in relation to the Enneagram.
0: This next question is a great question, very deep, and there's a lot in this question. So I'm just going to read out the paragraph that was sent through and then ask for your responses. So here's how it goes. I realize that you understand that our Enneagram doesn't change over our life. How do you understand trauma and the developmental trauma and the impact it has on someone's expression of their type or their understanding of themselves to understand their type? Both good questions. I would be intrigued to hear your thoughts as my understanding is that trauma greatly affects a person's coping strategies in response to that stress. There's a lot in that. What's your response to this?
1: To be honest, Seth, I was really um, kind of challenged when I got that question, mm-hmm. and thank you for sending it in. I was so kind of like, "Oh, this is not my wheelhouse. I am this is uh, this is above my pay grade. I am not a trauma expert by any means." And so I shot this off to Sue Whiteley, who we interviewed in season one, and she's a spiritual director, spiritual mentor, has a lot of um, experience in the space of working with people and and journeying with them over a long period of time. And I felt, and she's also has a really good understanding of the Enneagram. So I had wondered if she'd encountered this question before or uh, had some insights on this. So what Sue wrote back to this question is really helpful and I'll just read it out now and then Ryan and I can share our thoughts. But Mm -hmm. So Sue wrote, interesting question. I'm certainly not an expert on trauma, so reticent to give input here. But I think it circles back to the nature versus nurture question. I believe that our Enneagram type is part inherited, but that we are also impacted by light and heavy trauma. And maybe the trauma continuum is the environmental element that shapes our type as well. In my family, there is a strong line of type 5s and type 4s that I think is more inherited. Some gene research shows some genes are evident now that might be more aligned with personality type. But don't quote me on that. Not sure where I source that now. Uh, so that was Sue's take on it. And thank you, Sue, for sending in your uh, answer.
0: And you did just quote her on that.
1: And I quoted her on <laughs> it. And so I'm going to get into trouble, but sorry, Sue, I love you. Um, <laughs> but I think that was really helpful. And as Sue's a type five, and she was saying that there's this genetic thing component where there's a lot of type fives and fours in her family. But yeah, the nature versus nurture. So there's like partly inherited, partly trauma, uh maybe impacted. What what's your initial thoughts on this, Ryan?
2: My gut is uh, um without to try and see the tree through the forest and what is this question is I think the thing for me is I would want to affirm this person's pursuit to understand themselves more and they're holding the intricacies of their story. Um, I wonder what they might have experienced. I wonder what they're talking about and referring to in trauma, and that's such a personal question. I think I want to affirm this person's pursuit to know themselves and know their Father in heaven more, but also to... to actually say you're on the right track and you're okay however you are perceiving that at the moment it's not about getting it right or wrong i think you're on a journey of discovery um, and just to continue to pull the threads uh, that it, and to follow the path that jesus was laying out for you and so if you think you are for example if you think you're a nine and you're actually gaining insight and you are seeing some strategies and some coping mechanisms coming from that aspect but others are actually perceiving you differently or maybe you don't look like a nine that's okay um stay with where you are uh listen listen to voices that are worth listening to um and just help to block out ones that aren't helpful
0: yeah that's good that's very good yeah
2: and the only other layer that i can think of is just how and you guys might have spoken to this but and it's what sue refers to as what she call it light and heavy trauma just that word light so like I've observed a number of youth growing into young adulthood who I would call it nearly light trauma in the sense of the way their families have imposed a certain way of seeing the world so strongly on their children that they actually pick up this uh, this nurtured uh, view. So for instance, some of it is around the the six and, and there's a, a really strong fear motivation. Um, but as they integrate and discover more of themselves in adulthood there is a discovery actually i'm not a six i'm a one or i'm a three um but there was a a coming out of a family of family origin and and maybe i'd associate that with a light trauma might be a, a tricky word to kind of associate that with but potentially it's a way of seeing the world that is so heavily imposed on a dependent that it is actually enforced
1: yeah and on that you know as kids develop and turn into teenagers and young adults there's this concept in the enneagram we've touched on lightly in season one about the childhood wound that concept speaks into how even though it's thought that we are born with our Enneagram type, that's the general consensus, the environment which we've grown up in actually reinforces the coping mechanisms of our personality type. Like what Ryan was mentioning about sometimes a fear can come on and then you can be mistype as a six when you're actually a nine or something. But with the childhood wound, it's like if I'm born a six and my environment was super secure, safe, happy. And there was no reason, it wasn't a fear-based environment that I was brought up in, but because I was born a six, the way my parents loved me or brought me up still reinforced those, the wound of, I am not safe. It's like a proclivity to look for, you know, insecurity or or things that aren't safe or worst case scenarios. It was that I was kind of already looking for that. And no matter how well they parented me, I was always going to be moving through that continuum of a type six and growing into that space. But yeah, so I think with trauma and Enneagram, my best answer could be something like, we're born with our type and that type comes with some childhood wound, you know, idea that we aren't safe or we're not loved for who we are, but what for what we do or our needs are a problem. Whatever those childhood wounds are, we are going to come into the world with that. And so if there's a trauma attached to that which reinforces that wound even more and that message even more, how much more would that come out and our personality type be expressed from that wounding or from that, you know, our coping mechanisms are more attached to that wounding than if we hadn't have had that trauma happen to us at all. Again, I say that from a space of not being a trauma expert at all, this would be my best response to that question. And I really thank you for sending it in. It's it's, it's Mm. a really challenging question to talk through.
0: Another question that I have personally been asked from several different people is whether or not Christians should be listening to the Enneagram, knowing where the Enneagram originated. I'll say quote unquote, knowing where the Enneagram originated from the fact that it is not straight from the Bible. Is it something that Christians should even spend time wasting on? Or is it some new age mystic thing that uh, is we should fear? There isn't really one specific question, but the questions all have to do with is the Enneagram safe for Christians to use or to look at? How do you guys respond to that when people ask you?
1: The The true origin of the Enneagram the and way, the way it's presented to us today in its present form is unknown. So, and anyone who tells you that they know the origin of the Enneagram don't believe them because it's had a lot of iterations over a long, long time and I'm not talking 50 years, I'm talking more like hundreds of years. Uh, It's been based on a lot of different methodologies of personality, of thinking, of of behaviours, of vices to virtues. it's There's so much layers in there that's been taken from a lot of different traditions and cultures that you can't pin it down to, oh, it's definitely Middle Eastern, it's definitely Jewish, it's definitely whatever. So it's it's a conglomeration of all of these things that's been put together and it's still an evolving personality theory today. It's still being formed. So it's not that the Enneagram has arrived and this is it forever and ever. It is still being formed and grown. And we mentioned the levels of development. I think it was in one of our earliest episodes this season. And that was only brought into the Enneagram by Russ Hudson uh, and Don Rezo in the 70s. So that's still fairly recent. And the current Enneagram is is always being formed. Secondly, which actually is firstly in my mind, (laughs) is that the Enneagram is a tool. Just like any other tool, you know, it's not necessarily Christian, uh, it's not necessarily new age or non-Christian, it's just a tool that's been developed by a lot of different people and like any other tool, Christians can use it and non-Christians use it alike and we can use it for good or for bad, we can twist it, we can make it sound scary and mystical and new age, or we can make it, you know, sound Christian if we wanted to.
0: This is something that hits me at home because as a musician for years and years said, there's no such thing as a Christian song. There is a song and there is music and there are songs and music that can be used to point us to Jesus and songs that can be used to not point us to Jesus. Mm. The, The songs themselves aren't Christian. They're not Christians. They're not saved. They're just words. Mm. They are a tool that we use to direct our hearts in different directions. And some people can take beautiful music and use it to take our hearts in a very negative place, uh, and you can use the same music, the same chords. I mean, there aren't a lot of chords that we choose from, but there's millions of songs. They can use the same chords to do something completely different, and that's, that's as you yeah. were talking, Serena, that popped into my head. I was like, oh, it's like a tool that can be used for all... It's not good or bad. It's not Christian, mm. non-Christian. It's just music. Mm. How are we using it? And so that, that really came good. to my head.
1: The, the whole thing that scares people or Christians from using the Enneagram is that they think it leads us to Gnosticism, you know, that we are the we are our own God and God is inside of us and we can, um, you know, it's the answers are inside of us and we don't need God. And so if you're looking... At the Enneagram through Gnosticism and using it in that space totally it's gonna it's gonna work like that uh, just like Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finders. Also important to note is that the Desert Fathers of early Christianity first proposed this theory of human condition which the Enneagram is actually heavily based on. I don't know if many people know that and also the nine vices of the Enneagram are based on the seven deadly sins. It's It, it has got some Christian influences for sure but we're not claiming it's a christian tool
0: so i'm i'm wondering if that is part of where the the fear of the enneagram might come from because it's got some christianish stuff most of the people i've talked to and have got this question coming from a really good place they genuinely want to follow jesus they don't want to be listening to some dodgy thing that's out there and because it's kind of got some christian stuff in it but not fully there's that Mm. that feeling of um, an
2: impurity to it
0: yeah it's kind of Christiany, but it's not. It's it's not like this pure form. It's it's got some sort of pagan stuff in there, and so mm-hmm. I feel like the the people who are asking the question they're coming from a good place for that reason. So this, I don't want to be saying this to sort of belittle people who who are feeling this. I think if if you're feeling really convicted that you should not be involved because you, you're mm. reading the scriptures and it's, you feel you're hearing God saying, avoid this, then mm. some people should. You need to hold to the convictions the Spirit is giving mm. you. And so I, I just want to make it clear. Well,
2: we don't want to set up a war of uh, its right to follow the Enneagram or it's not as a Christian. We actually want you to trust the Holy Spirit's leading and mm. discernment in that. Um, and as Beth has been saying, I think that, yeah, for some, it's actually going to come out that this isn't something for them. They actually, the mm. Spirit will lead them away from it and that's okay. Mm. Um, I'll just think of, uh, Christmas. Um, I've actually got some friends of ours. For them, Christmas and its pagan roots mean it's something that they feel the Spirit convicting them to not participate in. However, for me personally, Christmas is a delightful time to celebrate the birth of Jesus mm. and to actually uh, celebrate this hope we have. And now I respect them and their convictions, but it's not my job to make them think the way I think or them to convert me to their beliefs either. We can hold these tension. And I think this is one of the beautiful aspects of the Enneagram too is personally, this is the thing that gets me. It's that idea of redemption and death and resurrection with Christmas, with something that has even been used for evil at times, how it can be actually reformed and is used as a great tool for insight. And for me, it says in scripture, you'll know them by their fruit. Um, And this refers to a number of different things. And I think for me, as I sat with uh, different Christian leaders, as I've journeyed with the Enneagram for myself. It has been a source and a wellspring, a tool to access more of God's heart and understanding. And for me, that and that sense of knowing it by its fruit, it has been uh, there's been so much fruit in my life and in those around me that it's actually been super beneficial and something I I personally would encourage others to explore. However, respecter of uh, boundaries and and conviction of where God's leading
1: you. And any episode from The Nine Design is not complete without a quote and me (laughs) quoting someone. Um. (laughs) Who who
0: have you got to quote today? Tell us. Pour out the wisdom.
1: So AJ Sherrill, which we have quoted on this this podcast before, and he says, The Enneagram helps identify areas of weakness which, for the Christian, assist self-awareness for the purpose of greater transformation into the image of Christ through the Spirit's leading in spiritual practices and community. For the Christian, it is particularly useful because it helps expose personal brokenness, sin, and shame, which can provide necessary clarity toward transformation. And that quote I love and sums up my position on this because it's us in transformation, self-awareness, but through the Spirit's leading Mm -hmm. and in spiritual practices and community. And that's beautiful. That's the best place for the Enneagram to be used in all of those spaces, with the Spirit's leading, in community, with spiritual practices. Awesome. Love it.
0: In fact, that kind of brings us to the next question because uh, AJ has written a book that we need Mm. to talk about. But the question says there are lots of books throughout this season. What are the top three books that we should be reading? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I want to put his book forward as definitely in the top three. So his book is called The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. It's written by AJ Cheryl. And you got to put that on your at least top three.
2: Uh, for me, I'm, I'm not the biggest reader when it comes to most things. I like to read, don't get me wrong, but I'm not the uh, I actually find a struggle to get through piles of books. Um, but there was a particular book, and you guys have already referenced it The Road Back to You by uh, Ian Morgan Cron and Susan Stabil. I just found this a really enjoyable read. It was easy access. I found myself at times laughing out loud. Um, I could picture myself and my friends and my family, um, and it really helped illuminate. The different aspects of personality and mm. in a really light, um, accessible way.
0: Is it because that's he's cool. also a four? Is that it? You felt that connection? Yeah. I that think that's probably be. exactly <laughs> <it>. <laughs> So, any fours, uh, <laughs> you've got to read this book. <laughs> oh, and AJ's a three. So, maybe that's why I'm drawn to that one. Wow. Mm. Oh, my goodness.
1: I was think of a book by Type Six. Yeah. Mm. Youth Stole Mindset, uh, Any group of Spiritual Formation is definitely Sorry. my top book. But that's totally fine. You can also affirm it. Yeah, uh, it's it's been so so good, and I couldn't recommend it enough. It talks about character. Starts with identity in Christ. You know, where, what's a better place to start when you're talking about the Enneagram? Identity in Christ. So good, and it and it ends wraps up with evangelism. So that's really interesting read on the Enneagram. Really different take. Has spiritual practices upstream, downstream, all throughout it, which. I've not read a book or found a book that has mm. that uh, in connection with the Enneagram. So super rich, go grab yourself a copy. <laughs> but my go-to book for this season, as well as that one, has been Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And that's just one that it's like a handbook for spiritual practices for mm. me. So that's a great one to to grab if you're new to spiritual practices.
0: I'm going to throw one more in there just because mm. uh, we can, but I don't want to overwhelm listeners with too many books, but one that... Has been really helpful is Alice Fryling's um book called Mirror for the Soul. That's Mirror for the Soul. It is really helpful. It was probably one Mm. of the first books that I read that it was a very strong Christian point Mm -hmm. of view around the Enneagram. Oh (laughs) Serena's holding it right there in front of (laughs) it. I found that one really helpful. (laughs) They were they were your two. (laughs) I stole them.
1: Yeah, that one is so good. Alice Fryling is a spiritual director. So she takes it from that angle as well. Super, super helpful.
2: And actually, guys, while we're talking about books, um, and especially in relation to spiritual practices, Dallas Willard, uh, he's written Renovation of the Heart. And um, there's a concept in there. And I think it's just a really good general concept to uh, be reminded of as we look at spiritual practices, because they're not the end, right? They're actually part of the intention or the means to the end. And he's just got this very simple practice uh, acronym he calls VIM. That's V-I-M. So it stands for vision, intention, and then means. And so in vision, we're actually talking about getting a vision for your life, like where you are and where you want to be. And how do we move towards that? And it's the intention behind moving towards it that actually makes that happen. That's That's the I in the VIM principle. The means to the end, that's where these practices actually come in. So sometimes starting from the point of the practice isn't as helpful as actually starting from a bigger picture going, what is my vision? Where am I heading? And then coming back to intention and then looking at these different practices and how they actually can move you towards Mm. those. Um, And even the way you integrate these practices, We actually, sometimes that means, means we actually need to look at our lives, lay it out on the table, see where these things fit in and see how we're actually going to integrate this into our lives. Mm, Yeah, I just thought it was a helpful um, pitch of this just to send you out on. That's
1: really great.
0: So that's it. We're done with season two. It's a wrap. Thank you so much for journeying with us through these spiritual practices. I hope it's been helpful and that you're able to give these a shot.
1: And our goal for this season is that it would be helpful in your growth towards your true self and that you've been able to love and appreciate those around you more.
0: And Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this season. It's been a pleasure to have your insights and your wisdom. And I look forward to more conversations in the future, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, it's been fun. Great opportunity for me to take my wanderings in the the bush and bring it and offer it to, and hopefully it's been helpful. Mm -hmm. And thanks for listening too, guys. If you found this podcast helpful, we'd love you to subscribe, share with your friends, or even follow on social media. And leave us a review as it helps more people find us.
1: So until next season, may you reflect God in your daily routine. May you draw people to Jesus through the way you've been designed. And may you endeavour to hear the Spirit as He draws you closer to the Father's heart, as you reflect the original.